Uh, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, and uh, you're going to need a Bible. If you would like to borrow one of the Bridge Bibles, just slip up your hand. We have uh, lots that we'd like to hand out. So just slip up your hand if you'd like to grab a Bible. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. On the Bridge Bible, it's page 481. Isaiah chapter 9. Last week I said we were going to talk about uh, some prophecies about the birth of Jesus Christ, and this is one of the key prophecies. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 as we start this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah writes this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past, He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadows of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as the people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing plunder For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in a battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Now, I hope you're asking, what does that have to do with Christmas? Good. That's a good question. Hang in there. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Count on it, okay? That's the passage. On January 12, 2007, Joshua Bell emerged from uh, the Washington, D.C. Metro rail car and positioned himself against a wall near a trash basket. He was wearing blue jeans, a long sleeve T-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case... He retrieved a violin. Then he opened the case and placed the case at his feet. And just so people would get the idea, idea, he put a few bucks in the open case and some change, seeding the case for future donations. Then he began to play his violin. Here's a short video clip to see what happened. Joshua Bell is a world-class violinist. He played uh, his violin for 45 minutes. He played Mozart and Schubert, and um, very few people even noticed he was there. Three days earlier, he'd played in in the Boston Symphony Hall to a sold-out audience at $100 a seat. The Washington Post sponsored this experiment They described it as an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. In a banal setting of an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? That's what their experiment was about. The birth of Jesus Christ. 
was at an inconvenient time. It took place in a banal setting, and only a few people noticed. Many people were waiting for the promised Messiah, who would be an awesome political deliverer. He would save God's people from their enemies. He would be a powerful leader who would be a great king, and he would execute justice and kill all of God's enemies. But they didn't notice when Jesus was born, a humble child in a humble stable, because there was no room for him at the inn. When you think about Christmas, we focus on the birth. Christmas is really about God becoming a human being. We call it the incarnation of Christ. It was about God becoming a man. The Old Testament prophets foretold about the Messiah. That's who this person would be. Messiah means anointed one. Messiah means the Christ, the anointed one, anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. One of the prophecies was Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. That's our passage this morning. As we study it this morning, you will see why it was difficult for people to understand what the birth of Jesus would be like and perhaps what his life would be like in the first century. Isaiah the prophet lived in the 8th century BC. He probably served as a prophet for about 60 years. Prophets spoke for God. They sometimes foretold the future. They could foretell the t- they, sometimes they were called to foretell the future next week, and sometimes it was hundreds and hundreds of years into the future. Prophets didn't know everything. Sometimes we, it just, this is just kind of a helpful thing. It, it's really simple, but we need to think of God communicated truth over time, and people got new information over time. We read the Bible, and we have the whole thing. We sometimes just expect that people back then understood the whole thing, and they didn't. So, for example, Moses lived around 1,400 years before the birth of Christ. He didn't know a whole lot about the future. All he knew was what God told him to do and what God gave him. Isaiah writes in the 8th century, he knows about the past, and he knows a tiny bit about the future. And along the way, new information is revealed. In 732 B.C., okay, hang with me now. Let's see if this is all going to make sense for you. 732 B.C., the powerful Assyrian king. This is the context of Isaiah 9. The powerful Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, an actual historical person, and we can date it at 732 B.C., invaded northern Israel with a heavy military force and carried some of Israelis into captivity and deported them. This was a sad time in the history of Israel. And what Isaiah writes, his prophecy is a prophecy of hope. Now let's watch this passage unfold. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So on your outline, 
Uh, Number one is watch for the land God will honor. Isaiah is giving clues to God's people about what's to come. It wasn't always easy to understand what God was unfolding, but here come the clues. Watch for the land God will choose to honor. There will be no more gloom or distress because God's people were facing uh, distress. They were, they were, everywhere they went was uh, an Assyrian military force. They were in subjugation to another foreign power. It was extremely humiliating for them to live in this time. And God speaks and he gives them a glimpse of the future. There will be no more gloom for those in the land of Zebulun. Where? The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The other thing you need to understand is there were certain times, just like in our country, there were certain areas that had different names at different times. At one time in history, all of the land of Israel was divided into 12. The 12 tribes of Israel. The the tribes of Israel are the sons of Jacob. Zebulun, let's stay back, stay back. Zebulun and Naphtali are sons of Jacob. They had families and they were given land. And let's just jump to that land since we saw that map. Imagine you can see real close here. I know it's not real easy to see. This land is divided into uh, 13 actually. At the bottom, you can see Simeon. Look for the capital letters. Simeon was a son. Right above that is Judah. And then uh, if you go upward, you can see a little Benjamin and Dan. And then right on top of that, Ephraim. And right on top of that, capital letters, Manasseh. And then keep going up to the top. Actually, we're going north. See Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali. Can you see that? Or is it just me who can see that? All right. Thank you very much. That's how God divided the land. At the time of Joshua, the land was divided into families, into tribes. So, so we see Zebulun and we see Naphtali. God says there's a certain time that he's going to honor this region. It's really important. This is the eighth century before Christ. All right. Now let's jump to the future. Also in verse 1, but in the future, he, that is God, will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. This is the future. This is a location. Who will do this? God will do it. He will honor the Galilee. Uh, This is not gloom or distress. This will be honor. The divine discipline will be removed because that's why the Assyrian army has been there, because they have been a disobedient people. Okay? So where is this? It's the Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, if you know anything about Israel, there is a Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, and the area around the Sea of Galilee is called Galilee. That's good, easy. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles. It was known from ancient history as Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? Because the Assyrians were there. They were the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And they were in charge. Israel was in subjugation. So it was a, um, Israel was invaded in the north and controlled by 
the Gentiles, Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea. So we're getting clues to what's going to happen and where it's going to happen. It's by the way of the sea. What's this? This is a term for international highway that went through Israel. As an international highway, it was known by the ancient peoples as a very important trade route. This is how armies went through Israel, by the way of the sea. It, was like a, it wasn't like a four-lane paved road, although Romans built some roads like that. It was just a, an area that was solid and easy to go through, not mountainous, not in a valley, not a lot of water. It was just an easy way to go through. Everybody knew in the first century, in the ninth century, eighth century, where this was, by the way of the sea. And then next, the clue is along the Jordan. And this is along the Jordan River. And uh, that's a, that, that uh, runs in northern Israel, and uh, it connects nor- some of uh, the northern part of Israel, and it runs into the Sea of Galilee. Okay, this is the key site in the New Testament. So the question is, has God already fulfilled this prophecy? And the answer is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. So, another clue. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. What's Nazareth? That's the town where Jesus grew up, right? Very good. He went and lived in Capernaum. What's that? It's a city on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had his headquarters in his public ministry. Kind of for two to three years, it was where he hung out, and, and that was his base, and then he left there to go places. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was, was by the lake in the area of, oh, gee, Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Next slide. The land of, this is Isaiah right here, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, People living in darkness have seen a great light of those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Now let's look at that New Testament map. There we go. Names change. First century Israel. Please notice at the bottom, there's a little town called Bethlehem. See where it's located? It's very small. Off to your left there, right above it, Jerusalem, the largest city, the most important city in Israel. They are located in the southern part of Israel. Now go up north. You can see Nazareth. Where is that? It's in the land of Zebulun, Nazareth. And then go up to Capernaum. Where is that? North Shore, the Sea of Galilee, headquarters of Jesus, Naphtali. Huh, 800 years. And Jesus fulfills Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. So, that's, watch for the land. Number two, another clue, watch for the great light. A light will push back darkness, verse 2. This is back to Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Darkness was the spiritual condition of Israel. Spiritually dark. 
They weren't following after the true and living God. They were kind of doing their own thing. They liked being religious. They kind of liked to dabble and experiment. They liked choosing their own gods. But they weren't into the true and living God. And they were in a time of spiritual darkness. So has God fulfilled this prophecy that people walking in darkness have seen a great light? The answer is uh, John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy in his lifetime. If you read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, it's very clear that Jesus was the light in the darkness, and he brought light to Israel, spiritual light. Um, information about who the true and living God is and what he is like and what he wants, and he wants us to walk in the light. John tells us that in 1 John as well. So what are the implications of Jesus being the light of the world from Isaiah chapter 9 for us? Matthew 5, verse 14. Here's what Jesus told his followers. You, plural, you, the church, you, all of you, are the light of the world. The light. You are the light. You, the hands and feet of Jesus, together are the light of the world. He's the light. And now the body of Christ is the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's not supposed to be. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That's stupid. Instead, they put it on a stand so everybody can see. And so... The light can have an impact in the room, and it gives light to everyone. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Because as if you walk with Jesus Christ, light comes out spiritually and shines brightly around you. And people begin to see, there must be something about God here. Maybe God is real. Maybe we should investigate more about this. People become curious when followers of Christ live this out and shine and walk uh, in obedience. So light will push back the darkness, verse 2. In verse 3, joy will replace gloom. Back to Isaiah. Joy will replace gloom. And here's what Isaiah says. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Who? You. God has. They rejoice before you as a people at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Um, people at the harvest, you know, the crop has come in. God has provided and they celebrate. And men rejoice when dividing the plunder. After a great victory, there's rejoicing. And Isaiah is saying, that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be a great time of rejoicing. Has this been fulfilled? A multiplication of joy because of the presence of the Messiah. You'll recall that Jesus brought rejoicing. Well, whenever Jesus healed somebody, there was excitement and rejoicing. Jesus raised people from the dead, and there was great rejoicing. When Jesus came into Jerusalem 
sitting on the back of a donkey. There was great rejoicing in the city and they were laying down palm branches and they were laying down their coats and they were saying, praise God. Because they understood Messiah was present. In John 15, verses 9 through 11, Jesus said this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You see, God's desire is that you have his joy. God's desire is that his joy in you would be complete. And I wonder if there's a correlation here between the first part. If you obey my commands. I think that's the message he's trying to convey here. You will remain in my love just as I obeyed my father's commands. I've told you this so that your joy will be complete. So that you'll get what it means to to remain in Christ and experience the joy uh, that Jesus has had offers. So, um, joy will replace gloom in Isaiah 9. Also in verses 4 and 5, justice will stop evil. Now let's jump to that hard passage in Isaiah 9. For in the day of Midian's defeat... Okay, Isaiah the prophet is now looking backward. He's been looking forward. Now he's looking backward into history. He's looking into the book of Judges. And he's looking into the time of Gideon's defeat of the Midianites. A battle that's already taken place. And Gideon brought a great victory for the people of God. Gideon was a judge in the book of Judges. Guess that. And he delivered God's people from their enemies. He brought justice. So there's a parallel here that uh, Isaiah is using here. He wants us to see, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke. God has shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Now you can see why people wanted a human military political deliverer who would come in and kill all the bad people. You see what people were looking for in the first century when Jesus came? They were looking for somebody. They had seen a lot of Roman generals ride in on a white horse. That's what they were looking for. They wanted Messiah to ride in on a white horse with a sword and kill everybody, all the bad people. And they thought everybody was bad except them. Okay? So what is this about? I never saw, read anything about Jesus doing this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. When we read the prophets in the Old Testament. One of the things we need to understand, stay with me here, stay with me. One of the things we need to understand, the prophets got the correct information and it was true. Guess what? Messiah is coming. He's coming. And this is true. These things are going to happen. We know they're going to happen. God has told us. What they didn't see, that Jesus would come the first time And then he would leave by his followers to advance the kingdom of God. 
And then Jesus intended to come a second time. The Old Testament prophets didn't know that. It was a mystery. The New Testament reveals it was a mystery. And so they saw this. He's coming. He's coming. But they didn't know this. There's some kind of time in there in between. And there are two different events and things are going to be different around both of them. They didn't see that. So has God fulfilled this prophecy? No, he hasn't. Will he? I think he might. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. This is John, last book in the Bible. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. Oh, there he is. He is coming on a white horse after all. Whose rider is called Faithful and True with Justice. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and so on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Uh Uh-oh, there's a clue. A robe dipped in blood. I think I know who this is. And his name is the word of God. Oh, yeah, that's what John said back in John chapter 1. The word of God. The word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen and white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. You're going to see this in just a minute. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is Jesus, and he's coming for justice. Please understand very clearly, when Jesus came the first time, he did not come to condemn the world. John chapter 3, verse 17. He came to save the world. There is a time when he will come, and it will be for justice and there will be people condemned okay number three watch for the child to be born i'm gonna go fast watch for the child to be born verse six uh, he will be god please notice that for us for to us a child is born to us a son is given isn't that that's really sweet because we like we see that on christmas cards For to us, a child is born. That's the human side of the Messiah. This is a mystery. This is hard to understand. For to us, a child is born. How are children born? Well, usually there's a pregnancy, and there's like usually around nine months to carry full term. And then usually there's a birth with a delivery, and you get a baby. And that's what's going to happen. 800 years. Before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah tells God's people, this is what's coming. Now notice carefully what it says next. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. There's a change. A son is given. Whose son? God's son. Who gave? God gave his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There is the human side and there is the divine side right here in verse 6. A child born, a son given. This is the first coming of Jesus. This is the first century. Now we jump 
And this gets complicated quickly, and, and people don't often think about this. And the government will be on his shoulders. When did that happen? It's never happened. It's Revelation chapter 20. And he will be called, and here are names, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yeah, let's go ahead and put him up. He will be called Wonderful. I don't think wonderful is an adjective that he is a wonderful counselor. I think wonderful is his name. He is wonderful. He is a God of wonders. He is a supernatural God. He performs miracle. He raises people from the dead. Okay? He is wonderful. God of wonders. He is a counselor. He is an all-wise God. Uh, in the future, there are going to be people from all, from all nations coming to him for wisdom. Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul says, Know the mystery of God, namely, Christ, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's the counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the all-powerful God. Um, he's the God uh, who heals. He's the creator God. He's the everlasting father. Now, this sometimes confuses people because uh, this is not the role of Jesus in the Godhead, that what we call the Trinity. He, in this case, is not the father. He is distinct from the father. This is his role to creation, to the created order. He is the eternal creator. And in that sense is the father of creation. And he is the prince of peace. It's not like prince is somehow lower than king. It's just that he's about peace. He's about uh, bringing peace to the world ultimately. And ultimately he will bring a peace. And it's not just the absence, absence of stress but it's about a wholeness and it's about a wellness. It's about a health. It's about physically and emotionally and spiritually being at peace. And that's coming. He will be God. Next, uh, in being God, he was born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah writes this two chapters earlier. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is how God, this is God's delivery system for Messiah. He will select a, a, a young virgin woman and she will be pregnant and she's going to give birth to a son. This is a miraculous birth and a miraculous conception. It is not an immaculate conception. It is a miraculous conception. Okay. And she will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. What is that? God with us. A lot of clues here, folks. God in human form. These are the words that the angel Gabriel used to speak to Joseph in telling Joseph about uh, his wife being pregnant and her child. God also marked out the place of birth, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He will be born in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Remember Bethlehem at the bottom of the map? Very small town. Though you are small among the clans of Judah. Judah was the province. The, Judah was the tribe, that, the, that land mass where 
Bethlehem was located. For us, it's like the county, okay? Um, and out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. So this is going to be a king whose origins are from old. Now, somebody's in the future is going to come from the past. That's complicated. It sounds like a riddle. Whose origins are from old, from ancient times. In the Hebrew, this can be translated eternity past. Whoever this ruler is, is coming from the past. And, and then uh, verse 7, he will be, fulfill God's promises to King David, and I will continue to go quickly. He will fulfill God's promises to King David. King David lived in about the 10th century before Christ, and God made some promises to him. Verse 7, this is Isaiah 9, 7. Of, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. Whoever this king is, he is unique. He is going to reign forever. Has that ever happened? Has Jesus reigned on David's throne forever? No. David's throne is about the kingdom located in Jerusalem. We're going to jump back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. This is a promise God made David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. So a descendant from David's line and will establish his kingdom. So God is going to establish the kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Solomon is going to build a house, a temple for God. But this isn't about Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom for a long time. Is that what it says? Forever. That's not Solomon. That's another king. It's the one Isaiah talked about in 9. It's a throne that we'll see in Revelation 20. Jesus will be king, Lord of Lord and king of kings forever. It's coming. Last passage I want to look at is Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Gabriel came to Mary, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Next passage. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. That is a very unique title. The Son, not a Son, the Son of the Most High, it's the son of the true and living God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. There's going to be a fulfillment of the promise to David through Mary's son. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's the nation Israel. And his kingdom will never end. That's who Jesus, that's who this child will be. And the very clear passage in Isaiah 9-7, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It won't be about David. It won't be about Mary and Joseph. It won't be about any other person. The Lord God is the one who will accomplish all of these things. So three quick reminders. Number one, 
When we think about this passage, God is sovereign and he works out his plans through the details of history. I want you to know that. As you study the Bible, as you read your Bible for yourself, you're going to learn this. God makes promises. You watch how he fulfills. Um, He doesn't operate always on our timetable. God has a different idea of time. He has a different idea sometimes than you and me of patience and endurance. And God is orchestrating the details of history. God is orchestrating the details of your history, your life to accomplish his purpose. You can count on that. Second reminder, God is faithful and always keeps his promises. God is faithful. It's because of who he is. He is a God of truth. He does not deceive. He always follows through. He is always faithful. So if he has promised something, you can count on it. That your sins are forgiven. You can count on it. If you've been given eternal life, you can count on it. If you've been made a citizen of heaven, that means you're going to be in heaven with papers to heaven. Citizenship. That he loves you, whether you feel like it or not, you can count on it. God is faithful and always keeps his promises. You could also count that one day he's bringing justice. And every wrong will be made right. And everyone will be accountable. Thirdly, God is gracious, not giving people what they deserve. That's good news, that God is gracious, not giving people what they deserve. Since Isaiah, 2,800 years have passed. God is at work being patient toward all men. He, he has raised up his church to be the light of the world, to shine brightly, to show others the way. And God has not brought judgment yet. But he is faithful, and you can count on it that he will. Isaiah tells us that judgment is coming. Before judgment, the Christmas message is that the child is born and a son is given. J.I. Packer, a Christian author, writes, The Christmas message is that there is hope in a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at, at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor, it was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might, be, he might hang on a cross. Another well-known Christian author, A.W. Tozer, wrote these words. Christ came to bring peace and we celebrate his coming by making peace impossible for six weeks of the year. He came to help the poor, and we often heap gifts upon those who don't need them. Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works. Let's stand and let's pray and let's thank God for sending his son. Father, I'm grateful for your word, and I just confess that sometimes there are passages that are hard to understand, and yet um, I believe your word is important, and 
There are so many answers that we can have if we search the scriptures. We learn more about who you are and what you're like and how you have worked in the past and how you intend to work in history and how we fit into the pieces. And God, it's my prayer that we as followers of Jesus will shine brightly for you. For Jesus' sake, amen.